Well, I actually thought, I always thought it was weird to say welcome to. I know, it's like, welcome to our enter into our space. Well, yeah, we are no. talking about, you know, yesterday we were talking a lot about extimacy. The inside is the outside. Sure. No, but that, like, <laughs> hi, this is estranged. Right. Okay. okay, so. Like, that's. Well, we can just imagine, ima- we can, like, S- ASMR this and be like, <laughs> you are walking into a house. We should get one of those head, like, head microphones. Have you seen those? What's that? It's like the shape of a human head, and it's a microphone. What? And it has like ears on that it. That sounds and you, you horrible. You speak into the ears. Yeah, it's very Cronenberg. Yeah, God, I mean, that's <laughs> like some kind of installation right there. Yeah, no, Maybe but we this should is. Just whisper this <laughs> we should we should do an ASMR episode and see how that goes. You did. You sent me the fu- actually the funniest text I've ever received in my entire life. The oh other my day. God. What was it in response to? You said you'd prefer to. We were talking about somebody that I don't particularly like. <laughs> And I said I'd rather I'd rather hear an ASMR of someone taking a shit. Yeah. Than oh, know, I know I remember now. Yeah. Than like resist like just like tolerating this person. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I um I use this word annoyment where you enjoy being annoyed. And so that, I get a lot of perverse enjoyment well, out that's, of Well that's enjoyment itself, isn't it? Yeah, it's true, but like there's a real I don't know if it's ple- you know, this kind of like I I enjoy like putting myself through listening to things I not only disagree with, but like viscerally disagree with. I mm. maybe should um, not do that, but it's fun. But it you would fun. rather listen to an ASMR of someone doing a number two than... No, but that's obviously false because I would actually listen to, to this guy because it's, you know, it's it's very pleasurable in the worst way possible. Yes. So mysterious. <laughs> no, but, but this <laughs> is... Uh, yeah, yeah. So you're listening to Estranged. This yes. is a podcast that takes apart... Um, films that are either within ideology or representing ideology and we're trying to find sort of the ruptures within these films mm-hmm. and to see how they represent our our current predicament which is living in capitalism as millennials yes okay that's a nice summary so we we uh, totally rip off Slavoj Žižek not that we aspire to be anything like the grand master of all things Daddy yeah. Žižek but <laughs> In the vein of uh, Pervert's Guide, we take a film each week and use it as like a launching pad to have a discussion about theory and ideology. Yeah, for okay. sure. Okay. So um, this week we're going to talk about uh, a film that I really like, mm-hmm. you like reluctantly because mm-hmm. you don't like horror movies, mm-hmm. but we think it's a it's a good film. Um, it's not necessarily like ripe. Mm-hmm. with theory or like it, it's it's hard to theorize it mm-hmm. but i think we're going to try our best mm-hmm. but that film is hereditary, hereditary that came out yes. last year last year yeah. and i was encouraged by you to go to the cinema to watch it and i didn't sleep for four days <laughs> i have problems with nightmares anyway i have this like real kind of presence at night of just have really visceral dreams and ugh. Yeah. but yeah my god and then my boyfriend kept doing the clicking sound um, I honestly was so terrified <laughs> for weeks. Yeah. Well, for four days I didn't sleep, but I was terrified. But the second time I watched it, I wasn't so scared. But I think I was looking at it more of you know theoretically rather than kind of viscerally. The second time. The second time. You watched it at the movies the first time. Watched it at the movies the first time, and was really became afraid of like some shooter coming into the cinema and shooting everything. I don't know. I was like really on edge the entire time. What's the deal with? There's a lot of people that mm-hmm. are extreme fans of Tony Collette. Like there's, yeah. I think maybe her subreddit is like pretty active, but really? she has like a cult following. She has been in some really good films. She really has. Little Miss Sunshine. Yes, Muriel's um, Wedding. And what was that? Muriel's Wedding. I haven't seen that one. Yeah. Um, yes. The Sixth oh, Sense. Yeah, I mean, she's very, she was in Velvet Buzzsaw. Did you watch it? Yeah, I did. What did you think? I thought it was really funny. Yeah, I was also quite scared by it. It's kind of comedy horror. I was like, I, I don't know. Well I watching it. At some point, I, I didn't think it was funny at the beginning, mm-hmm. but then I started watching really closely Jake Gyllenhaal's mm-hmm. like acting, mm-hmm. and I thought, I think, I think he's trying to make mm-hmm. this role funny. Yeah. And I, once I was seeing it like yeah. that, I just couldn't stop laughing because like yeah. every like just the way he acts is hilarious. I do like. Um, I can't even remember the guy's name who directed it and also nightcrawler i feel like they have the potential to have been greats yeah they're a little bit um fastly as produced i feel like they could have been 
more, I, I, I think like structurally. You mean the director? Yeah, no, the films themselves, I, I felt like they're a bit, they're a bit okay. rushed and kind of, no, I don't want to say slap, yeah. that's like a really horrible term, but I think that, you know, they have something very brilliant to them, but yeah. that, I mean, I could go into kind of like a technical reason why I think that's really boring, but I feel like they're nearly great. We talked about this the other day. We talked about certain artists, artists like not having a clear idea. And this mm-hmm. is a very common trope within artists that mm-hmm. they, they, they themselves are not completely aware of the impli- of mm-hmm. the theoretical implications mm-hmm. of their work. It's interesting because I think maybe I'm too much of a heady person, but I have to be in complete control logically of what I'm creating. Otherwise, I can't do it. And then anything else that emerges kind of in the imaginary realm. Yeah. Is something that emerges from the seed of the idea, but unless I'm completely clear of the single track idea, I, I can't even start. But I've worked with lots of people, like musicians especially, yeah, um, from like making music videos and kind of when we discuss like what the film's about, I have to have like an idea, and then from that, well, any body can project whatever they want onto the the vision that they see, and perhaps there's like a multiplicity of meaning later but from a like creative point of view i have to have it like so clear and yeah. be like well the song's about this and this but also about this as well and i'm like how yeah. can you write if you don't but then i yeah maybe that's why i do writing rather than music well no, yeah but i think that i th- i think that you have a really good point there and it's that a really good director is aware that his work lends itself to different interpretations mm-hmm. but he doesn't partake or he doesn't join the audience mm-hmm. in interpreting his own film. Yeah. I th- he, he has like a specific sort of theme mm-hmm. that is very clear mm-hmm. or maybe not so clear, but it is clear to him mm-hmm. or her. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like uh, people can think whatever yeah. they want about it, but there there is a line that is like pretty, mm-hmm. pretty strong. I mean, I feel like, like any technology and I feel like writing, well, fiction writing and obviously film are technologies and... There is, but they're, they're, they're so complex in the kind of like constellation-y type way that they're made that then subsequently the clarity of theme is kind of blurred in the very process or form of the technology itself. Yeah. But I personally, I don't know how, I actually haven't talked to that many other writers and stuff about um, this thing, but I, yeah, I have to be 100% and I've, you know, so, some things that I've I've written, in retrospect, they haven't worked. And I realized, for me, it's because I didn't actually know what I was saying. Yeah. Or I would, I, you know, sometimes I'd be like, I want to say this and this. And oh, I just, this is a great thing. I'll whack it in there. But it, it has to be all about one thing. Yeah. I've also talked to some songwriter friends. They write things and then I ask them what mm-hmm. the song's about. Mm-hmm. Some of them don't know. Yeah. Like they'll just say like, yeah, I think it comes from somewhere personal, but I'm not sure what it mm-hmm. means or anything. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's something to having a piece of art that is very clear mm-hmm. to the director, even though it lends itself to interpretation mm-hmm. for the listener. Yeah, it's interesting. I I wonder, Spectator. you know, what, what, what that comes out of uh, a person who is more kind of logically based rather than sensorial. But yeah, I'm, I'm very... Um, and it's funny, you know, film, when you are writing and pitching a film, you have to create something called a log line, which is the most arbitrary one-sentence summary of what your film is. Yeah. Um, and it's this really like weird thing that's almost more difficult to do than the actual film itself. And you always miss. It's funny because when I sometimes like summarize something that I've written, for instance, I've this podcast that you and I both worked on, Audioburg, Adrian wrote this amazing music for it, but... You could summarize a novel 10 different ways, as in this happens, this character does it, this is the theme, and they would all be right. But but I feel like as a writer before starting, I have to have this arbitrary one that I have decided is what's, what it's about. And then, yeah. you know, the kind of the very flourishing of the process, like the technology of fiction writing itself. Mm-hmm then lend its, lends itself to something more complex than what the writer even thinks in the first place. Yeah. yeah. It's almost like you have to be very strict with yourself mm. so that the audience doesn't have to. Yeah. Well, this is we were talking about this a lot when we were uh, working on the school for the film that we made last year, uh, Making Love. And um, yeah, I almost feel that the film has to be so... It's on the part of the director to be so precise, 
so kind of anally retentive and like mm-hmm. perfectionistic that they create something that is so able to be transmitted in such a visceral way <laughs> that the yeah. audience just receives it in this kind of like wash yeah. and that nothing disturbs them in the viewing process. It's funny because you have things like, you know, Kubrick in um, The Shining where there's deliberately co- deliberate continuity errors and um, you do sometimes see this in horror films. They kind of like make it a discomfort, an uncomfortable viewing experience by deliberately having um, continuity errors. I recently saw Suspiria and there's a scene where Tilda Swinton is smoking a cigarette where it has like the worst continuity errors I've ever seen. And my boyfriend was like, oh no, that's deliberate. And I was like, no, that's just bad. But I don't know, <laughs> I, 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 I just, I feel like I'm too much in the imaginary realm. I get too afraid of things. Things are so real for me that I just, horror movies, I just get so affected that I just can't even bear them. <laughs> yeah, because I think you uh, you wanted the music to be the same, like yeah. very, very punctual towards certain themes. And like, I, I think I was trying to do something that was a little bit more withheld mm-hmm. and it wasn't pointing towards danger or anything. Mm-hmm. But it's like, you were like, no, 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 there's a, there's a dangerous mm-hmm. moment coming up. Like we need to like foreshadow it with the music. Yeah. And so I think there's things like um, any point that a, a viewer is like, what's happening here? Then you've lost them. Yeah. And I feel like more than a novel, you know, it's more, well, it's funny because like Roland Barthes has this theory of like a readerly or a writerly text. And there's, so there's lots of things that, you know, I'd agree. I think that like the premise of Roland Barthes, like the death of the author is like a very important topic in terms of analyzing a film or a piece of work. But for me, the participatory experience of film is visceral. And then afterwards come all of these greater kind of elements and obviously reading is done in the head of the reader and perhaps it's a, it's a very different experience. But yeah, when, as soon as you have an audience saying, oh, what's happening here? Or there was a scene in the film that I thought that people could get lost when the the old man leaves the car. For, I think that was the bit you're talking about. Yeah, and I feel oh, yeah. like you really have to kind of point people yeah. because it's in this like short amount of time. And in order for all of the elements of the film to be to land correctly they have to yeah have this very kind of clear viewing experience which is okay so i think that if you have a really good idea mm-hmm. you should be clear about it but like to the audience it'll seem complex mm-hmm. whereas i think that if you have kind of a weak idea mm-hmm. you have to like include yourself in the audience and like mm-hmm. think that there's like these open holes and maybe mm-hmm. like narrative gaps and whatever mm-hmm. it's funny because we're going to be talking about lynch in a later episode yeah um and yeah for me he's very 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 clear yeah his films are very logical but it but doesn't come almost, across like that yeah but because it's so well thought out then it can it's almost like it transcends the the very logic he's so such a master manipulator of the technique that then it can become, and it's funny because there's so many films that. Same with Villeneuve. Yeah, I mean, I mean, oh yeah, I don't know. I was just watching a scene from Prisoners. That's why I just obsessed with Denis Villeneuve. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I think um, there's often you see this with like early filmmakers who make like a short film that's quote unquote artistic, and it does because you know it's it's almost imitative of they've seen these great directors do things that are very artistic, but it doesn't work because it. You know, it has the semblance of being artistic, but at the core, there's nothing there. Yeah, that, yeah, I think that's that's the point that I was trying to make. Yeah. Um, but anyway. Anyway. We're gonna talk about hereditary, hereditary and yes. um, which I think that maybe, at least to me, it seems like a film that really knows what the th- the central themes are. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. it is kind of mysterious. There are some mm-hmm. things about the film that are still kind of enigmatic to me that I don't completely yeah, understand. and I think maybe watching it subsequently, knowing what happens, makes it less scary. Yeah. And it obviously, um, when you are, you know, kind of throughout a narrative structure, you have all these series of reveals. You withhold information, and then it all becomes clear as you go. in different genres withhold in different ways. Like you have a detective genre, and the information as in what happens, obviously the author's completely aware of who died, how it was done, but the whole process is the reveals are withheld right until the end. And I've seen some films that don't work because the audience loses interest, like the lost object of discovering what's happened is so withheld that you're bored. But, you know, this this film doesn't make sense until the end. There's kind of a very confusing um, 
the presentation of facts, yeah. but when you know what happens subsequently, it kind of it's like the sense making makes it less scary. Yeah, it never reveals itself like fully. It's yeah. just by parts, and yeah. you just have like snippets of the story. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, do you want to give a quick rundown of the movie, just for okay. people? Okay, I feel like I'm really having doing this for a living and like having to summarize all the time i'm really bad at it maybe i overthink and i'm like okay this happens and this happens so it is a film about a um a family well i mean it's spoilers alert massive spoilers alert who are descendants of a woman who is inhabited by pymen so yes the film is about a um a family who's uh has a female relative, the the mother of Tony Collette and the grandmother of the children, who was inhabited by um, Pyman. King um, Pyman, yeah. King Pyman. Excuse me, King Pyman. I, I, I apologize. <laughs> and um, she dies. And then this Pyman demon character must find a new human form. Mm-hmm. And throughout uh, a the male. St- a male human, human form. form or a, a kind of a healthy human form. Mm-hmm. And throughout the film, the family is kind of terrorized by this demon force that eventually finds the form of the son of the family. Yeah, they're like, uh, they have a complete lack of agency. Mm-hmm. Everything that happens to them is sort of like predetermined by this coven of... Uh, by the way, if you haven't seen this, like this is this going to obviously be very spoiler heavy, but yes. <laughs> it's predetermined by a coven of witches. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, there's death in the family, there's an incapacity for sacrifice, and that all happens because there's a coven of, of witches or mm-hmm. warlocks. Is that like the male equivalent wizard? of a witch? A like wizard. That's, that's like in Harry Potter, it's a witch and a wizard. I don't know. Yeah, Men. I think maybe it might be more like... Yeah. It's interesting you talk about lack of agency because that is something that happens in a horror movie, but a- apparent agency is something that's very important in narrative storytelling. Um, and there was a film that we had a disagreement about that you liked that I didn't, that was kind of a critique of capitalism, but I felt it failed on a technique level. Oh, because yeah. the main we shouldn't ma- but anyway, we'll talk about that another time. It's yeah, stories yeah. <laughs> the film. Anyway, so this film, the reason why I thought it was... Well, you raised it as a film that we should discuss... Yeah, it starts with, it starts with a model home because mm-hmm. Tony Collette in the in the movie uh, does these like miniature models mm-hmm. of like houses and uh, well different types of, uh, of of living spaces, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I think it's, it's somebody else. I I read this somewhere, but it's like they pointed out that it's sort of a, a reflection of who they are mm-hmm. a family without agency like they're sort of puppets mm-hmm. that like because like mm-hmm. i think that the models that she does yeah. also have yeah. like these miniature puppets and they 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 have absolutely no control over what mm-hmm. goes on in, in their lives mm-hmm. it's interesting because the trope of miniature is a big thing in in narrative storytelling films that are to do with fate um something like have you seen atonement yeah yeah atonement opens with a miniature house of the house and it's all about kind of the woman coming to terms with what happened and rearranging a story from kind of like a master puppeteer position so yeah films that are to do with fate it is kind of a trope um yeah and it's interesting about the idea of fate and how this force um otherworldly force plays its part in influencing and shaping their lives and maybe that has something to do with with the unconscious which is why this movie is scary in the first place Mm -hmm. because it's being played to an audience that cherishes their the illusion of agency Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i think this movie sort of points to a rupture again that that that's why it's horrific because Mm -hmm. it it, you know you see this family that at at the end of the movie there's this scene where tony collette tries to sacrifice herself Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. for her husband Mm -hmm. and can't even do that yeah, ends up killing him. Like you would think that maybe sacrifice is something that would maybe break the spell mm-hmm. or something, mm-hmm. or something that would dispel whatever mm-hmm. the, like conjuring or something that's going on with them. But she can't even do that. Yeah. Like even her, even her like consideration to sacrifice her own life, mm-hmm. she she doesn't have agency over giving up her own mm-hmm. life. And I think that's that's like a really really horrifying thing for mm-hmm. our times in which yeah. like 
you know, our our agency sort of, or the illusion of our agency mm-hmm. is put on a pedestal, and yeah. you know, it, it's it's a true commodified thing. It's interesting because yeah, we have in the past this idea, certainly in America, uh, and more kind of Calvinistic cultures like the UK, this idea of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, mm-hmm. and people coming to the realization, well, mm, no, as in the idea, the notion we have of meritocracy doesn't exist. It's not to say that the that it's sh- you know that's something that is a good thing, meritocracy, but certainly there are other forces at play and um but the correctives that are kind of being discussed at the moment aren't really more to do with replacing who's sitting at the table rather than looking at the table and thinking there's another formation of the table entirely or turning over of the table um yeah no it's interesting this kind of horrifying idea of there's something other going on than us being pure rational beings yeah who are in control of our own lives interestingly there were kind of two things we wanted to talk about today one of them was the idea about um how belief works and that's more of a kind of uh, audience based response to horror films and then the nature of the unconscious and the real within the film itself how the real warps um our experience of life so i was thinking the first one maybe we should talk about is the idea that even though we live in this kind of time of the death of god and non-belief the way audiences respond to horror shows how belief operates in us Mm -hmm. so i think i mentioned this in a previous podcast the idea that you don't have to believe in ghosts to be afraid of them we all know that you know the devil doesn't exist and yet we still have this horrific um visceral response to a film not being able to sleep i genuinely believed that paimon was clicking his tongue in my kitchen for days (laughs) afterwards but i don't i don't really believe in anything Mm -hmm. so and it's how ideology works as well it's not i think this is something maybe some way that we differed from kind of the liberal or progressive perspective that might see things like patriarchy as a structure that is a thing that needs to be overcome but we would see ideology as you used a good word warp rather than an actual thing yeah as in we it doesn't have to exist like ghosts for us to still psychically respond or formulate ourselves around it it's an insistence it's an insistence capitalism is an insistence rather than something that exists yeah yeah and i think that the way that the film works is that um there's something controlling their lives mm-hmm. but they feel like it as if they as if they have lost mm-hmm. some kind of agency now the 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 reflection in real life is that the horror is a warp itself because the reality is that we don't really have agency Mm -hmm. um but this insistence that we might be able to Mm -hmm. have uh um, agency Mm -hmm. is definitely the way that i think the the real works Mm -hmm. which is this horrific sort of thing that doesn't exist but yet sort of constitutes some kind of discontinuity Mm -hmm. within the texture of reality Mm -hmm. it's interesting because uh, my boyfriend and I had a had a, kind of a discussion about this in relation to this film, Sorry to Bother You, which is obviously the premise of this film. That film is about, um, yeah, being within a capitalist system, you don't have agency. And f- the, the narrative structure of film as a technique and storytelling as a technique speaks to us in a way that we kind of want to hear, which is that we do have agency. You have somebody in it is a character who overcomes or doesn't undercome, overcome or reaches a goal or doesn't reach a goal by the end of the story and they move towards it and learn something throughout that process and in order to say something about agency you have to use that kind of opposite structural point yep in order to be able to express it so films like fight club do it in an interesting way where they use different characters other than the very bland main character to take action Mm. Um, and this film, horror films, do it in an interesting way, where they, I, I guess these these this family is trying to find out what is happening to them by the end of the story, and they do kind of appear to take actions towards that goal. Yeah. Even though you know that. Yeah, it's, I it's think both themselves and not themselves. This 
this element outside of themselves. Yeah, this is the way that I would put it in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. And it's, I think it harkens back to what we were talking about Jordan Peterson. Mm -hmm. And it's like, he talks about this culture of Marxism, mm -hmm. this sort of big machine, conspiratorial mm -hmm. machine that is in control of the academic mm -hmm. world and everything. But obviously, obviously that doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're a Marxist in, a, in, a, in the academy, it's probably not going to go very well for you anyway. Yeah, you probably won't be able to actually say anything <laughs> yeah, and and i think we talked about this in one of the previous episodes of like the 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 investment in the subject supposed to mm -hmm. know mm -hmm. so in the belief that there is something some kind of absolute mm -hmm. some subject in the know mm -hmm. that controls everything and as we can clearly see in in hereditary mm -hmm. uh, the coven is absolutely not absolute mm -hmm. Uh, th you know, they're what they're hoping for is more wisdom, mm -hmm. more health for their mm -hmm. family, possibly more wealth. Um, like they're obviously lacking subjects mm -hmm. that want. want and that's more. almost what's like more horrific is finding out that the subject supposed to know doesn't exist. Exactly, it's yeah. horror. It's you know, the death of God is profoundly frightening. Yeah. Um, yeah, and talking about Jordan Peterson and talking about just this idea I was talking about with the the technology of film. There's a, a kind of a screenwriting expert who I do really, really respect, but he was uh, giving a talk that I heard and he said, oh, well, we're currently in, a, in, a, in an era of storytelling that's very Freudian, we need to move towards a Jungian storytelling. And I actually think that the technique of storytelling is very it's Jungian. Very in, yeah. And in order to do something Freudian, you have to manipulate it in a very clever way and we need to move towards Freudian. Mm -hmm. And there's actually, I think, think very few Freudian storytellers and filmmakers out there. And the reason why Jordan Peterson is so interested in Disney films mm -hmm. is that they are completely, completely Jungian. Jungian. And, yeah. and that is the co-opting, like that Jungian perspective of balance, that there's a lesson to be learned that then you can improve through is what we believe as a society still. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, what did you think about the music in Hereditary? Did you know that... Yeah. Okay, I don't know if you if you remember about the music so much, but this is by this guy called uh, Stetson. I think Chris. Chris Stetson? Mm -hmm. uh, did you know that he just plays like... Uh, like, like sax? Yeah. Like trumpet. I don't know if he plays trumpets, but like woodwind yeah. instruments and yeah. all that stuff. Um, I thought that was very interesting. I really liked the final scene. I, it's funny because it's very churchy. And I, that's what I, the element I liked most about Interstellar was the churchy organ music and that kind of like holy music at the end. Yeah. The final scene I really liked. It's very sort of like it, it's, it has some kind of reverence. Mm. It's very, very religious at it's the end. It's very religious, yeah. I have to say, I do remember being, I mean, it has this very disturbing heartbeat kind of rhythm through it that's like very yeah. excessive and intrusive. And I found it annoying the second time I watched it, but the first time I was obviously completely captivated and frightened, so it did its job. Yeah, there's this, there's these parts where, what are the, I don't know what they're called, but there's like these kind of horns that are very, very old. Oh, what, like French horn? No, 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 no like anglais? they're made out of like no. bone, and uh, they have like, they, they they're like, they have a curve to them, and... What, like a, like, as in, as in like an actual horn? You, yeah, you can't even, <laughs> you can't even pitch control them. It's just like there's a thing they just go like oh, is that like, you what know, they kinda, used? It, it sounds kind yeah I'm they saying. use that a couple of times wow. in the in the yeah. film and it's horrifying yeah yeah it's very um yeah I mean the whole film is so disturbing it's funny because we talked about La La Land La La Land is almost more disturbing but this is just disturbing in a different way and I wonder what the different ways are but I also thought about like the definition of what it what is a villain that's the coffee machine <laughs> um. The definition of what it is Ooh, to be a true that. villain. Mm -hmm. And I told you about the difference between, for example, the Joker mm -hmm. and the Dark Knight, where, you know, Michael Caine talks about the Joker. It's like, mm -hmm. you shouldn't mess with this guy. Uh, he's a complete lunatic. Like, he only really wants to watch the world burn. Mm -hmm. But I don't think that's a scary. It yeah. seems to me like that's more like mental illness yeah. than evil. It's true and because... And yeah, hereditary, like... An like the hereditary, the coven is like at the expense of a family mm -hmm. they're asking for wealth and health mm -hmm. and like uh wisdom and all that mm -hmm. stuff um that seems to me like true evil yeah they want they want they want something out of something else as opposed to just a relatively a, a, good know. things yeah i mean yeah that is conflict the world is full of conflict people i think that is something that um is 
very uh, repressed in the contemporary scene. Mm-hmm. We kind of think that there's, oh, well, as we'll all get along. As long as we're nice to X group, we'll all get along. But life is conflict. People's desires are conflictual. Yeah. And we're not very good with that. Yeah. You know, it's quite something that we don't want to admit. It's something that we have to learn as children. You know, the, the no, the first no of the father is is what generates a sense of self, what generates language. And in order mm-hmm. to interact with other people, we have to have, yeah, the possibility to to negotiate the reality principle. Yeah. You know, it's almost like we want to um, overcome the reality principle. Mm-hmm. And in order to do that, all we have to do is be nice to people. But interestingly like enough, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, I think we agree with this is that the reality principle is precisely what generates enjoyment. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Do you want to talk about the difference between pleasure and enjoyment? Yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, um, so there's a difference between pleasure and enjoyment in the sense that enjoyment is the repetition of the lost of the lost object. Mm-hmm. So I think that I mean I'm not the greatest at explaining this, but I think that when you come into consciousness, there's something that you sort of give up. Mm-hmm. Um, not something that you actually had, but you sort of accept this lack Mm -hmm. that you don't have something that you feel like you were at one with Mm -hmm. at some point before in your life, which you never were, Mm -hmm. but it it feels like that. Mm -hmm. And um, the interesting thing is that uh, people want to continue to desire. They don't actually want to get the thing that Mm -hmm. they want. Mm -hmm. So enjoyment comes from the repetition of that loss mm-hmm. like feeling like you're really close mm-hmm. to that object mm-hmm. uh but you know unconsciously knowing that it doesn't exist mm-hmm. and then experiencing the horrific loss or the disappointment of just falling short of that yeah so absolutely, and pleasure yeah. and you know and pleasure is just like you know you want a pizza and you go get a pizza and exactly. it tastes good uh, this is the thing it's it's a uh, uh, there's textually different kinds of um I don't want to use either word pleasure or enjoyment because they're so such technical terms of getting something one wants. Yeah. Yeah, and enjoyment. Enjoyment is really um, how we orientate ourselves around the lost object. And the lost object is that thing which we believe is going to return us to this oneness of kind of conjuring up the desire of our primary caregiver, or mm-hmm. like returning to the womb, basically. But that place never existed. And we never were ourselves in that place. It was like pre-being a person. And we don't want to actually attain that lost object because if we get it, we realize it won't exist. And enjoyment is that kind of revolving around the fantasy of being able to attain that thing. Yeah. But that thing doesn't exist. It's the language of uh, death drive. Yes. Don't you think that it's very interesting that in hereditary, uh, they want... They want to gain wisdom and, mm-hmm. and health and wealth and whatever because they're lacking beings. Um, and doesn't it make perfect sense mm-hmm. that they are going for the transcendent? I think I've heard Zizek say this before yeah. that I've heard Zizek say that uh, death drive isn't the desire to die. Mm-hmm. It's a desire for transcendence, mm-hmm. something that will give well, ultimate meaning to your life. It's, and- it's interesting you say that death drive is the desire for transcendence and transcendence is this ability to give up agency, mm-hmm. to be an acting self. It's almost like... To kink payment. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, it's it's like when you were in the womb, you didn't exist. It was, an, it, it was a void. It was a nothingness. But this kind of... I am I am a pre-language baby. I don't know what I want. I cry. I'm told I want this and I'm given to, given it. Oh, you're hungry, eat. Oh, you're tired, sleep. And it's this, the subject's supposed to know, tells us both what we want mm-hmm. and gives us the solution to it. Yeah. But the thing is, our parents, they don't have a fucking clue either. So, <laughs> yeah, no, you're absolutely right. So it's kind of a death. It's like the idea of um, sleeping beauty why is she asleep? She's like this beautiful woman who doesn't have to do anything. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's certain feminist readings of Sleeping Beauty, you know, but <laughs> I don't partake of those. But I think the idea is this kind of like, it represents the idea that if you're such a beautiful, special person, you don't have to do anything. Yeah. But it's not It's not good. You, you're dead. Mm-hmm. And you're right, like pre, pre-life is death. Yeah. And the, the interesting thing is, it, it, it is interesting that he puts it in these terms because 
I would kind of argue that liberalism is towards a teleology, this kind of this transcendent utopia that we can um, achieve. But that's death. A, yep. it doesn't exist because we, we, are like, we are like the moths banging against the lampshade of the yep. light and eventually we just kill ourselves in doing it. Yeah, it's, so what you're saying is like the pre, before life there is death mm-hmm. and the only thing that we believe that can deliver us to that primordial death mm-hmm. is the transcendent. Mm-hmm. Is that, that right? doesn't exist, yeah. Absolutely, yeah. It's interesting, you know, we're talking about La La Land and the idea of the universe and that the universe has been co-opted by new age kind of religions or the universe told me to do this the universe will take care of me the universe has the answer the universe is a void Mm -hmm. there's nothing there i mean if we entered the universe we'd just be like obliterated yeah explode yeah (laughs) even though i don't really believe in 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 all this stuff like Mm -hmm. you know the demons and all that i got into it i mean i i i I researched into it um why not into king payment Mm -hmm. and it's a real you know, it's a real mythological figure. Mm-hmm. Um, there's actually a Reddit, okay, s- a subreddit. Yeah, I'm not sure for him, but I think there's one called Three Kings and like another one just for the occult. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically, they did like pretty good research because King Payment is one of I don't know, maybe like f- four different kings. Mm-hmm. I think there's one for North, East, West, and South. Maybe Connor Habib, if he ever listens yeah, to this. Yeah, we have gonna... a friend who's into witchcraft, so I'm yeah, yeah. <laughs> I might be totally wrong about this, but um, there's apparently, like, people that do all these, like, uh, ritualistic yeah. practices of, like, you know, you have this circle of salt and yeah. you have, like, these these candles. Yeah. And, like, there's a lot of people that actually write, like, you know, witness stories of, like, mm-hmm. I made this, I did this ritual. Mm-hmm. And uh, I saw I was visited by mm-hmm. King Payment, or I was visited by the Three Kings, mm-hmm. and like, yeah, I'm sure I it's like know. very real. I mean, people have visions, people experience transcendent moments, people experience the divine. But I, you know, I don't want to say it's like biological explanation, but yep. I feel like yes, we can dissolve our egos in certain moments, and things a double six can be rolled. And certain experiences can appear to be divine. I mean, I certainly have had experiences that I couldn't explain and then ended up doing stupid things because believing some magical thing had right. happened. Right. And this is and this is one of the things that we were talking about. It's just like there are certain philosophers that are possibly most likely atheist, mm-hmm. but they're sort of struggling to bring into the fore of philosophy the idea of the transcendent. Mm-hmm. And... The the thing is that like we at the same time w- desire to get in touch with the transcendent through our death drive, mm-hmm. but immediately after the transcendent possibly erupts mm-hmm. into our reality, we cover over it or we repress it through a narrative that has to do with a specific religion, like mm-hmm. you know, like yeah. the occult mm-hmm. or Christianity or yeah. whatever. Yeah. So that's that's not facing up to the transcendent. That's actually covering. Right. Over it, it is interesting. I mean, I had a, a moment that I felt was divine when I was about twenty-one, and then subsequently got into Jungianism. Yeah, you named it. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah, and it's you're right. And it, the the thing is that actually. So we are beings of excess. We feel jouissance, we feel excess. And explanation, which is this kind of, the supplementary, I don't know even what I'd call it, that emerges uh, out of language. Yeah, yeah, that emerges out of language that is something that we do paper over with explanations. Yeah. And yeah, so we talk like a religion is something that makes an explanation out of the divine. Rather than accepting that these things can happen and they're profoundly moving and seem completely illogical, yeah. And they kind of paper over it. It's funny because I was talking about dating with my youngest sister. My youngest sister's currently dating. And it's painful. Yeah. You know, the unknowing, the having to go on, you know, does he like me? Does he not? This You feel this painful excess of unknowing. Mm-hmm. And the way to get rid of it is to get married. Mm-hmm. So yeah. we always find, you know, people go on diets because they can't bear the freedom of eating. Mm. You know, eating is this profoundly traumatic thing. We have to find ways of not having to think about this this drive of eating. We kind of like harness it by by being like, okay, I, I only eat keto or I eat vegan or I, I don't eat before this time. And it's a way that you don't have to deal with kind of the complex excess of how do you deal with food. Or people yeah. like ritualize sex because sex itself is like really excessive and horrible. Yeah. Like routines are almost a way to not to have to deal with the excesses of life. Yeah. 
What do you think that, I mean, I think that we then both agree that one of the things that, well, it's not a theological solution, definitely not. And I think this will go against the point, but I think maybe something that could help the way that we experience life Mm -hmm. is a disinvestment from any type of solution. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, like, uh, and this is why, and and this is very interesting because I think it's a, it's a double back that Mayasu is doing uh, when he's, he's like trying to theorize the transcendent Mm -hmm. is that complete unknowing. Mm -hmm. It's just like, don't put a name on it. Mm -hmm. It's not about Christianity. It's Mm -hmm. not about any kind of religion. Mm -hmm. It's not about any kind of like, mystical thing mm-hmm. it's just transcendent for the sake of transcendence mm-hmm. it might be fractured mm-hmm. but there is this like in order for you to come to terms with that sort of transcendence mm-hmm. there is a giving up of any type of name that you mm-hmm. might put into it Absolutely. and i think what is that so what is that to you like just the uh the disinvestment from from the name it's interesting by the way so, uh adrian was just talking about quentin mayasu who's kind of a younger philosopher from france whose field is speculative no actually that's well what's it what is it something realism what is it i'm gonna have to google it because speculative realism is like a form of um correlative uh correlationism i should have looked at it i mean he's trying to disprove correlationism yes but there's a form of there's a form of um yes speculative materialism okay yes speculative realism is like a form of uh sci-fi or something i think i think it's like close to i mean i know graham Harmon is mm-hmm. like one of the main guys there mm-hmm. and i think uh it's pretty it's relatively close to like object-oriented ontology okay. the triple o thing so the idea of excess yeah i mean i think that a lot of divine I don't know if divine is but yeah, transcendent experiences, strange experiences, moving experiences can be explained uh, logically. But in logically naming them, yeah, you are kind of papering over the fact that they reveal some kind of element of the real. You so a friend recently had an experience where he visited a shaman and took um, mushrooms and had this amazing, but it's like, to me, it's like, well, yeah, you've got like a dopamine dump in your brain. Yeah, of course it's amazing. Of course you feel amazing. Of course you see things differently. But then almost yeah. by like papering, by saying that, it's exact, doing exactly the same as being like, oh, well, you know, the divine visited you and that's the explanation. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think I told you about this before, but I had a friend that told me about uh, uh, just an experience he had that he took mushrooms and together with his girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And then that he had this experience where like he was, he was, I mean, he was obviously high and then he turned to his girlfriend mm-hmm. and then realized, I don't like her. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. I, I actually hate this woman. I don't want to be with her. And then once the high was over, he broke up with her. Mm-hmm. And I think that what Mayasu is trying to get at is like, there's this openness before it has a name, mm-hmm. before there's a reason for it. Yeah. Because obviously, if you're taking mushrooms in order to, like, I don't know, uh, you know, expand your consciousness or whatever, uh, you're you're already looking for an answer. Yeah. And regardless mm-hmm. of uh, you know what happens, like in your brain, if when mm-hmm. when you're when you're taking mushrooms or whatever, if you have that predisposition for an for an answer, mm-hmm. yeah, something's obviously going to change in your life. When you're going to like look for something to change. I mean, this yeah, this is why I had which will ultimately be completely disappointing and I guess you know this is like the the dichotomy between atheism and theism that like atheism isn't the answer either like a hyper lot focus on logic or that that also is papering over everything Mm -hmm. um but it is also why I have a personal problem with um religions of new age um they function just as much just like any organized religion and um from personal experience seeing certain kinds of uh, therapists to deal with my problem doing like past life regressions. It really, you know, as you said, you know, this, this friend of yours who kind of almost arbitrarily, oh, my girlfriend's the problem. This is what I experienced. And the first thing I turned to is my girlfriend and I break up with her. I took so many decisions based on this logic of past life regressions that damaged me so much. Yeah. But I don't, you know, I wouldn't resort just to pure logic, but I am a very, very logical person. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, yeah, 
it's just it's just interesting how those two things how lots of things that we think are more spiritual are completely not that function as a way of papering over some quote-unquote spiritual experience yeah i i think this is one of the reasons why peter has a lot of follow followers that you, you know they I, maybe they idealize him or whatever mm-hmm. but i think that peter's really tapping into this this tradition that that is saying like they're there we need a healthy dose of unknowing mm-hmm which is a, it, it points to the gap. It yeah. points to like a sort of uh, a, a gap in the sequence of reality, mm-hmm. a gap mm-hmm. in, in uh, the sequence of, of signifiers mm-hmm. that we all partake on. Um, I don't know. I just, I just feel like it, there's not a lot of people talking about that. Like, I mean, no, I right now we're in LA. I'm not from here, yeah. but like, you know, there's, there's, there's an excess of belief and it's not you know people think that you know belief that is not religious is mm-hmm. not belief mm-hmm. it absolutely it's, it's is almost belief. more religious than religion yeah. itself this is why i love la because it is for me it's like this no place there's nothing it's like the end of fantasy it's a complete shithole in many places mm-hmm. it's like a desert city with like it's kind of ugly there's nothing here and that's why i like it i just love the grit the grime the shittiness the dirt I love these kind of like broken dreams. It's kind of like it's like a Beach Boys song on the super on the on the surface. It's this la 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 lovely 1960s sunshine, but they're like profoundly sad lyrics. Yeah, That's yeah. why I kind of like it. But it is a place that is full of belief. Mm-hmm. But it kind of, feel like if you can kind of like avoid that, then it's kind of really fascinating. And I have loads of friends who hate LA for that very reason because they think it's this excessive that people are obsessed with their work and fame and. I feel like it's kind of the, almost the opposite of that, but you're right. There, there, there are. It's the play that you know the center for Scientology, the ultimate religion of getting what you want on a material level in this world. There is a um, people visit psychics twenty four, and the thing is, you know, visit a psychic or don't visit a psychic. Who cares? Yeah, it's neither correct or not correct. Yeah, in fact, well, it's not correct, but you can still get some like experience that might help you if you want to but you know yeah but there's this like eerie openness Mm -hmm. to things that are not even really that that are underdeveloped like uh i don't know i I was talking to a friend the other day of of uh, acupuncture Mm -hmm. and the word that she uses like i i I told her very very carefully you know kind of Mm -hmm. skeptical it's like you know have you thought about acupuncture and she was like oh i totally believe in that stuff Mm -hmm. and she used the word believe Mm -hmm. It's like, obviously, I think that there's a some there's some kind of like meltdown of of belief that is redoubling the power or the, the force of that people have mm-hmm. to believe in something. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, I have a lot of friends that are just like becoming even more conservative mm-hmm. because of, obviously, if you feel like if you if you lost something, mm-hmm. uh, you want to you want to regain some primordial thing from yeah. the past that you feel like you've lost. But, um, yeah, I guess what you're talking about is like the dialectic of belief. Um, an amazing film I would recommend people watch is The Party by a director called Sally Potter, an English director. She did an amazing adaptation of Orlando by Virginia Woolf with Tilda Swinton in the 90s. Um, but in this film, a character is a very skeptical character who says, scratch an aromatherapist and you find a fascist. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, any belief system works in the same way. There's a, you know, um, René Girard talks about this a lot, the scapegoat mechanism in any kind of uh, belief system in in order to paper over uh, the real and the antagonism that exists in reality, you have a scapegoat. And in, you know, veganism, it might be red meat. I don't know, you know, um, but again, that doesn't mean like veganism is necessarily bad, but it can function as a belief that requires a scapegoat and so yeah and anything in a sense that's orientated towards like a teleological end is by definition some kind of belief system that papers over the antagonism so this is why liberalism also scapegoats yeah and thinking back on the previous episode mm-hmm. where we were talking about the difference between 68 mm-hmm. and liberals mm-hmm. that's why I don't think, and I think you agree that that sixty eight doesn't work anymore. Yeah, it actually, mm-hmm. because sixty eight has become so embedded into a teleological hope, mm-hmm. uh, and nothing really has happened mm-hmm. because it's impossible. Mm-hmm. There is no like big 
unending mm-hmm. big closure that is possible mm-hmm. people have resorted to uh, uh uh, liberal sort of like self-policing mm-hmm. and the policing of others mm-hmm. that's what it ends up in mm-hmm. but do you think that it's possible then for like people to really start to practice disinvestment from any type of belief i think it is yeah i think it is i think it's very difficult I everybody would is. have to go to psychoanalysis yeah <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I really do think it is and you know there are people who are very very brave in 68 and martin luther king and people who you know the th- the Vietnam War was, you know, there's, there's certain things that really did need to change and, you know, lots of repression. But again, we'll do another, we'll do an episode about repressions because repression is also a kind of conflictual thing that's both good and bad at the same time. But, you know, mm-hmm. people people were excluded. But what were they excluded from? Yep. Well, capitalism. What has happened post-68 sexual revolution? Sex has become so ubiquitous that, it, you know, so commercialized ads start you know sex was what was used to sell post 68 that we like millennials don't have sex anymore sex is so unsexy it's been completely you know that's by dint of lessening repressions around sex but that was kind of the idea that perversion would would be the answer but i just don't think it is but not to say that 68 shouldn't have happened at all you know it was necessary to time but we're at a very very different moment and those elements of rebellion in 68 have been co-opted to such an extent that there's a different response is required now no i think it's i think it's definitely a dialectical Mm -hmm. process because i think that the spirit of 68 has been taken to such an extreme that it requires its opposite to continue well i mean and the thing is it's like one doesn't want to fall into the trap of like um there's certain uh, uh, YouTubers and commentators online who say like uh, con- conservatism is the new punk or something, because th- that's not a response either. But those kind of those two sides. No, no, no. Point, yeah, I don't. I don't mean in the sense of like a left and right. Yeah. Just the idea that I think there was a clear sort of investment into some kind of theological resolution yeah, yeah, yeah. with sixty-eight. That I think its opposite would be a disinvestment yeah, yeah, that right. eventually yeah. maybe not in a sort of resolution way, mm-hmm. but it continues the spirit of 68. Yeah, yeah. no, you're right. And it, this is a figure of um, the rebel in Camus that is so important. Um, and, it, you know, I just find it so frustrating, you know, in, in political terms at the moment where you have two sides of what are exactly the same coin to me, both capitalists, both completely imbued with contemporary ideology, and one is saying slightly different thing, like include people, and one is like be a bit more traditional. And it, but it's basically the same thing. If you were to kind of like boil everything down to that, you know, it's the same thing. But Camus' figure of the rebel, the rebel, is somebody that's outside of the system itself, mm-hmm. and not that you know the contrarian position is always the correct one, but. There is an element of truth in it. You know, it's not about it's not about being a revolutionary against a system that exists and then just flipping it over and having the same thing but different. Yep. It's it's within one's action being aware of what is not working and trying to do one's best. Yep. With the knowledge that one has to um not maintain. Yeah. Uh a process that is potentially harmful. I mean, one of the reasons I think that we are so, one of the tricks that capitalism pulled so well is to do um, with uh, globalization and how we have shipped off our scapegoat to the third world. Like we don't, we're not presented with the underside of capitalism anymore like they were one of the periods of greatest um economic and social change was during the industrial revolution places like britain some by dint of there being this really kind of profoundly traumatic vision within the country itself of these factories these children working in factories uh 14 hour days things like the weekend uh were introduced children's rights school women's rights but we don't see any of that. Are we? we don't see the children in Congo mining cobalt for our phones. Yeah. But Apple is, oh, it's so sleek. And, oh, it's so into social justice. Oh, it's so great. And there's this dangling of something apparently good, but completely masking over what the actual antagonism is. Yeah. So would you say then that maybe the 
the the opposite of naming something in order to repress mm-hmm. the transcendent would be mm-hmm. contrarianism because contrarianism doesn't really belong to the left or to the right yeah no it doesn't it, yeah it's it's just sort of like the momentum of, i would say yeah contra- rather than contrarianism like rebellion mm-hmm. potentially Oh, well, you know, now I remembered Hillary Clinton saying that she's now a part of the resistance. Do you remember, do you remember that? <laughs> Sorry, I'm just, I'm just closing my eyes and having a moment. Yeah. I mean, this is, yeah. I mean, you also get like Disney, you know, Rogue One, the, the Star mm-hmm. Wars thing is just like completely based on like resistance. and mm-hmm. But it's very, very, you know, obviously the name of that is like the force, which would translate into some kind of uh, yeah. in, in super invested hope. Some kind of like... Um, westernization of some kind of like quote unquote eastern yeah you know yeah um yeah i mean i think that's possibly why we have the situation that we have is the uh lack of recognition by the democratic party of the actual act- antagonisms at play the scapegoats of a certain disen um disempowered demographic and the idea that they are the goodies yeah. Rather than it being much more like the whole issue being located somewhere else. But yeah. it's, you know, it's a, a desperate desire not to confront the the tragedy of a contemporary situation and things like credit has been a very clever way for capitalism to continue without us confronting it. You know, the mortgage crisis 2008 was you know, essentially there's no growth. So how do we generate excessive growth? Oh, we we have speculation in property. Mm-hmm. You know, so now the mortgage, and now we have credit cards and student loans and credit and uh, and car loans. Yeah. You know, credit is a really is a, a a way of like um, delaying the um, an acknowledgement of the real antagonisms at play. But at some stage, yeah, they have to be recognised. Yeah. And the more you paper over, but yeah, no, it's it's it's, it's I think it, part of it, this this lo- love Trump's hate was such a great <laughs> Freudian slip on their yeah. part you know that the scapegoat they had to create the scapegoat to generate this belief system that like oh as long as we just they love hating on trump because trump is the perfect almost kind of excuse like excuse not to change anything yeah almost like uh well i, ha- I had this kind of uh, altercation with this this i i, I like her i mean she's mm-hmm. i consider her a friend on twitter but she put this post of uh i forgot this muslim activist and um a woman came up to them and she was, you know, she was very angry, obviously kind of like a like a Trump supporter type. And the Muslim guy just like started to chant in her face together with the rest of the of the of the of the of the, of the room. Like, we love you, like just like mm-hmm. shouting mm-hmm. at her, like mm-hmm. we love you, which obviously was like the act. The words were saying I love mm-hmm. you, but the act was just mm-hmm. like, you know, shut mm-hmm. up. Mm-hmm. It's very similar to what we were talking about before of like Shia LaBeouf and just like you will not divide us just like shouting with like just it's like desperation, yeah. yeah out of rage like this guy yeah, just I mean, like, you're absolutely right you know the action rather than the word yeah it's like the texture but it's shut up um, I mean yeah, he's obviously dividing himself from this guy's like mm-hmm. worldview there yeah. as there's abs- I mean no not, not that shouting. there should be like obviously yeah. in some cases like discourse is over yeah but like obviously there was some kind of divide between him and her yeah, between, yeah. between the other guys like yeah. you will well, you're like, absolutely right you know the censoring is a way and I'm not saying that I support at all the people who are being censored yeah but it's just it's just textually or symbolically a sign of how we are papering over the antagonism and maybe um, not listening to the actual logic, yeah. but listening to the pain of people who are resorting to certain positions in yeah. order to understand. Um, but yeah, no, I, the love Trump's hate is just, you know, it's just, as long as we get rid of the basket of deplorables or we'll continue on in our perpetual pursuit of this perfect world. Yeah. And they need the love of Trump in order to maintain <laughs> their fantasy of the utopian capitalistic world that will eventually arise apparently so basically the takeaway is that life sucks (laughs) (laughs) no but it's an accepting it's an accepting the powerlessness it's falling in love with the fact that life sucks life i feel like life can only exist you know we're talking about happiness and what is happiness in this we mistake our happiness in the pursuit of happiness rather than just being happy Mm -hmm. yeah you know happiness is work it's connection with other people it's being yeah and we can have we can just miss being happy our entire lives in the pursuit of something else 
I'm not sure that a lot of people are going to get this from watching Hereditary if they haven't. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, it's a very loose jumping off point. Yeah. But. All right. right. Well, we'll leave it there. And until next time. All right. Goodbye. Bye.